This is the Life Therapy with Zeta podcast. I'm Zeta. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Conversations with Ourselves, the place where the ordinary conversation reveals the extraordinary. Today I'm in conversation with Deborah Brand, the spoke for Setier. It's a rare thing that anything is ever 100% perfect. But somehow through her genius, her attention to detail, her compulsion to reach perfection, Deborah has managed to achieve this in every little thing that she does in relation to the corsets she designs. For some of the most famous women in the world who she has dressed, from Naomi Campbell to Salma Hayek and Penelope Cruz, not only has she created perfection in her work, but she has invited women around the world to find the perfection of empowerment within themselves. I encourage you to join this conversation. It is revealing not only in understanding the history of female undergarments, underwear, that most intimate piece of clothing that we wear, but how what we wear forms only a small percentage of who we are and who we become. That is an inside job. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. It was a beautiful journey and Deborah is an absolute delight. Welcome to Conversations with Ourselves. Goodness, there are so many places to start this conversation with you. It's always so exciting. Whenever I meet you, I'm like, oh, what are we going to talk about today? What's it going to be about? Oh, I want to ask about this. But I guess for our listeners, um, the best place to start really is with an introduction about you and who you are. Because, of course... I know you from years and years and years ago when you were doing that amazing clothing line, Subcouture, and then reconnecting with you and discovering you in the world of corsetry. So, mm. you tell us wow. your story. As you said, I started doing a label that was, the con- concept was young designer dresses under the price point of £100, what is quintessentially known now as a diffusion label. It was bringing that to the person I was then, 18 to 25 year olds, giving them a little bit of glamour, making them look sexy. And I think that's what I've done my entire life, is to make women look strong, sexy, sophisticated and empowered. So I've been a designer for 30 years now. I've never been able to be employed and uh, I've never had the concentration to stick at anything else for any length of time. So my whole life has been devoted to this. So for the, my 90s, it was Sacre-Tour. My 2000s, it was Deborah Brand designing Couture, where I was able to really do beautiful wedding dresses, red carpet gowns all kinds of uh, beautiful, beautiful garments. And then following a horse riding accident 10 years ago, I uh, um, came out of that accident uh, with a very different shaped body. 
and found myself completely invisible. I felt invisible and I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was that had changed, but because I'd put on weight, my stomach had descended. And at that point I realized uh, that you don't feel, for myself, I didn't feel sexy as a woman without this hourglass shape. And I've always designed for people that are for myself and for the, you know, as I've grown, my clients have grown. So who I was in my 20s was one thing in my 30s, in my 40s, and now into my 50s. And uh, so I felt that I was speaking for my generation. And I found that this is where I started my journey of corsetry uh, to create. I initially wanted to create the corset to go inside the dresses but then I found they took a life of their own and they took their own meaning and their own beauty. And so 10 years ago, I transitioned over into corsetry, which is a very, very niche market. I'm yet to meet another corseteer, but I absolutely love what I do. And I think I'm quite good at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, from the bits of your work that I've seen, I think you're absolutely Extraordinary, I said. And I must confess, I've always actually secretly really loved corsets. I've always had a fascination. I remember there used to be this old lady shop on uh, the lower west side of Manhattan, the West Village. And I would go in there and I would find these old corsets from the 1930s and 1940s. Some of them had zips up the front, but they were beautiful. And I'd just buy them and take them home and have this box filled. So... <sighs> I there's I think they're extraordinary in their they're an undergarment they're an overgarment they're but you tell me how I mean you've explained about having this accident and how that brought you to corsets but what's the what's the part of the process you enjoy most and and I mean it, lots of people have horse riding accidents let's put it that way not everybody comes round to going, oh, I'm going to make corsets out of this. So Yeah, I'm the only person I know to date that got that out of a horse riding accident. Uh, mostly because I've made women look beautiful my entire life and I didn't feel beautiful myself. My body shape had changed. I was a different size, but it wasn't the size that was the bit that was hurting. It was the fact that I didn't feel feminine. And so the corsetry started because of a number of things you'll find in these big turns in your life, that it's more than one thing that comes at you. Yeah. So there was this need to grow as a designer. I'd, I'd accomplished these amazing dresses, gowns, wedding dresses, and I could make these these pieces that will make women look for their very best day of their life and look the very best they can. And so I'd achieved that. And so there was this need as an artist to get better and to grow. And through corsetry, the art of corsetry, I managed to find that peak. And for me, when I went into corsetry, that's when the art came. That's when I saw myself as an artist. And also really respected what I did because it's a lot of work. I think uh, I've told you that uh, it took three years for me to develop 
a pattern of corsetry that I felt was worthy. And then another seven years and practicing it on my couture clients before I felt that it could be released as a ready-to-wear garment. So I am incredibly proud of what I've made. I, I sometimes look at them and think, did I make that? And that's a wonderful feeling because it's uh, that actualization of uh, this be- being the very best that you can be. Yeah. Whatever you decide to do, as Muhammad Ali said, if you're going to be a road sweeper, be the best road sweeper. So for me, being a corseteer is being the best designer I can be. Well, you certainly are that. I mean, and it's interesting that you talk about the relationship to femininity because, you know, sometimes I'll often see in these body shaming in reverse stories about, you know, women pointing out some celebrity who snapped back her body after having a child and it must be because of this. Now, I know from my years of working as fashion as a stylist, you know, the moment uh, a celebrity had had a child, we'd get in a corset just to start to train her body and her waist, which was something that women had been doing for hundreds of years. And somehow we lost that disconnect with mm-hmm. supporting the body in a really healthy way, which is what corsets were designed to do, mm-hmm. to come back to their form in preparation for the next child that would come after that and after that, and also supporting the musculoskeletal structure of women. Mm. And we've taken that right off the table somehow. Very much so. When a woman... Could I just ask, were they stretch corsets that you wore uh, for somebody post-pregnancy? Did they have stretch in them? Some had stretch. Everybody had a, a different perception. Sometimes I would manage to find ones, not with bone, but it was like a sort of, I guess, a plastic that created just a little bit of structure in yeah. four or five places, and then we would hook, connect, or yeah. zip them up the back. Is there a difference between the... Oh. I know yours are completely... Oh, no, what it is, um, there's different horses for different courses, and coming out of pregnancy in the nicest possible way, your child takes the place of your stomach muscles. So when you, when you are, have had your baby, your stomach muscles, instead of being there, are out here because they've been pushed open right so the baby is very much at the forefront the muscles are back here they've been pushed through so to wear that's a comforter to wear that because you're just gently pulling those muscles back in there's no torture involved in this it's basically taking something that's gone out there and you're putting it back where it should belong you're returning it back to its original state of what what it was before and so with that that's a different how could I say, uh, it's a different expertise because everything is is different, you know. Every, yeah. every, so for what I do, corsets, by definition, are woven. There's no stretch in them. Okay. So these things would be called comforters and or waist trainers, something like that. Course, with corsetry, you can achieve something very exceptional. Those are very good to bring you back to where you were. Corsetry can completely Photoshop you. You can morph into something really incredible and be something that you never thought you could be because at the end of the day, fashion and dressing up is fantasy. Absolutely. You know, it's expressing yourself in your truest form. And 
through corsetry, you can create something you've never been able to cre- create before and you will have gone through so many years being an adult, not knowing that you could create this other part of you and look completely different because I have a, a, a very mainstay of clients who are, there's, there's one that they're larger and their stomach is distended, which is what happened to me. And then there's others who are got a very, very slim frame. They would call it the apple the apple shape and no matter what they do their stomach their their waist their underbust measurement and their hip measurement will all and their waist will always be the same there's no way they can change that because it's body shape but they can through corsetry and so I watch my girls flower because they know there's no way they would be able to achieve that unless they wore a corset well, I do remember when you had the debut launch of your ready-to-wear, the women there were just in delight and really enjoying this experience and process. And it was really beautiful to see the intimacy of the connection between you as the designer and the woman coming into her course. And then they were all wandering around as if they had entered some wonderful, beautiful... It's like they, uh, like a peacock, isn't it? Yeah. They just sort of come alive. Yeah. I don't know what that word that you would say. They want to uh, flaunt themselves. I don't think that's not the right word. They want to, their their feathers have gone up and they want to show themselves. And quite rightly, because women are beautiful. Ain't that the truth? So you said something interesting about corsetry. I'm staying with the subject because I'm really fascinated by it. But please do. It's my it's my specialist subject. If this was mastermind, I'd be getting a hundred percent. So stick with it. Don't go to anything else. I'll try. We might have to. Go no, to I'll get. I won't be so good at that. This I'm good at. Just like uh, Carrie and Sex in the City when she goes to work at Vogue and. They say, oh, you need to do another write-up about shoes. She went, no, shoes I know about. <laughs> well, you Everything might, else? You might then have to guide me on the questions to ask about corsetry because, I mean, what I am interested in is that given the beauty of them and the finesse and the wonder and the peacock tree and the display and the fantasy that one can go to, why do they kind of seemingly disappear from the world of fashion? I can categorically answer that question. And it is because in the 19th century, so from 1800 to 1900, a woman would have lived and died wearing a corset. And that was because at that time women, their, their place in the world was basically to grow and then present themselves to the man and then become wives. That was their life, not the kind of women we have now. And so because of that, they didn't have to do very much. So they didn't have to be practical. And so their waists were taken into... I'm now just showing Zita what 16 inches is. Okay, so their waists were taken into that. This, this smaller than a thigh of a Smaller than a side plate. That's like a little saucer. Smaller than a saucer. Yeah. yeah. Um, wow. Not much bigger than uh, uh, the... Uh, where you have a cup of tea, the, that little saucer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not much bigger than that, yes. Yeah. So this is where you get the stories of... 
women having ribs taken away, women passing out, women not being able to stand up without their corset on because their, their, their back muscles hadn't developed because the corset was always holding them up. And like everything, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So imagine living your whole life like this and then the First World War was what really brought around the change. When all the men went to war, women had to go out into the fields. So they created a what was called a sportswear corset, which was 22 inches, which was starting to get to at least something that vaguely resembles. Uh, that's probably the size of a thigh, but ra- vaguely resembles what could be a waist. And then... What happened was, is when that, once women got hold of that idea that they could then be free, they could be liberated, there was the backlash. And you've got in the 20s, uh, women like Chanel coming in with this asymmetrical, free, different line. And it was new. It was different. They wanted, women wanted to dress like this. The corsets came back briefly in the 40s and 50s through the new look after the Second World War. But by the 60s, were replaced by people like Mary Quant, that lovely, again, androgynous look. And so what happened was somebody that was born in the 1900s would have died by about 1960. And by 1960, the corset, as these women died, the corset died with them. And that was the reason why they became obsolete, because they were seen as a sign of oppression. And... If you can imagine being kept 16 inches all your life you're, and then watching the next generation not have to wear that, you can imagine the absurdity. So between 1960 and 2000, apart from in 1990 when Madonna wore her John Paul Gaultier pink corset for her tour, the only place you could see corsets were in museums. They were put, made be completely historical. Wow. And it's hard to imagine now that there were no corsets, but the only way you could find them was in museums or second-hand stores. You talked about being in New York. What year are you speaking that you were in New York? Oh, this would have been around uh, 1996, 97 was when I really... I'm sure I was influenced by that Madonna thing. But aside from that, I think I'd grown up on watching old movies with my aunt. So it was in my... Cellular memory. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Myself also, because all, I've always been a body co- conscious, I've always dressed women to look, to embrace their femininity. And so that has always been quite body conscious. So corsetry is the finest art of that. So I did my first corseted dress exclusively for Harrods in, I think, 1995, which I probably, in retrospect, was influenced by Madonna. And then my journey went along. And what's happened since then is, it's a very interesting fact. 50 years ago, so that would be 1970, the average waist size was between 24 and 25. Mm -hmm. Now, the average waist size, have an idea. Give me me what you think it could be. The average? Average waist size of a woman. Which country? Let's say USA. Oh, well, that's a whole different ballpark. That starts maybe, what, around 30? 34 to 35. <gasps> yeah. So the waist has gone up. That, I will say USA because that's where I get my statistic from. Right. But I also have 
my own personal watch from the women that I design for. And so we've grown up, we've grown in size, we've grown outwards. And so what's happened in the last 10 years when I crossed over to corsetry because of my own personal journey, women's bodies have changed. And the last ten, when I first started doing corsetry in earnest, my friends and the people around me didn't really quite understand what I was doing and neither could I. It was an obsession, it was a passion, it was a need to become, the, as I said, the very best version of what I could do. And so it was more of a personal journey, but in the last few years, you've, I'm watching corsetry now come into the mainstream. Mm. And when people see it, they always send me pictures because like, they think of me as the corset woman. <laughs> and it's now coming more, which is what made me decide to do a ready-to-wear corset because my corset is, in my own opinion, one of the, the best. It's the best a corset can be. You reach a, a point where you've hit perfection and it can't go any further. My corsets have 45 bones. They are five different consistencies of bones. I've tried every fabric. I've tried every lining, interlining, wires, bra cups. I Three years, I tried everything out. So I've come up with the optimum corset that is comfortable to wear. Yes, believe it or not, it's comfortable and it's easy to get in and out of because they were the two requirements that I felt was important. And now I've seen the tide change. Women's shapes, if you think about it, when, when in the 70s, 80s, even 90s, it was all about being this super slim woman. You know, there was the, in 95, it was the heroin chic, it was this very emaciated woman. This is something I aspired to be when I was growing up. This is all I saw in the magazines. Throughout history, we have always favoured the silhouette of a very, very slim woman, mostly women not men, because women ultimately do dress for themselves. But we have always admired this slimmer shape. Now, the century, we turn into this century, slowly we are starting to see a much more womanly figure, and in my opinion, a more beautiful figure. We are now creating more diversity. We're seeing adverts in the glossy mags of women who are the same age as us, rather than seeing a 14, 15 pubescent woman modeling these clothes that back then in the 90s, we bought because we saw it on them. That's all changed. So we're now celebrating the shape that we are, the age that we are, and everything about ourselves. We've got larger. We've basically got larger as a race. The female race is getting larger. And she's accepting that and also understanding that men find this so much more attractive. Women who are slim look better in clothes because you can have all of this frill and fancy. You can add all of these things to it because you're looking at a very, you're looking at a clothes horse. Now women, they're more curvaceous, so the accessory is their body. And so this is where I know corsetry is coming in and is, is not going to be a fashion item, it's going to be a staple item because we bring, we enhance those curves, whereas before we were looking at a much more androgynous shape, going forward we're looking at a much more womanly and a much more sexy shape. And it's fantastic that that's been accepted because this, this unrealistic view of thinking that we can look like these 14, 15 year olds 
it's, it's absurd. And why should you? Why should you look like that? Why don't you look the very best version of yourself? And so I compare corsetry to a pair of wonderful high heels, although it's much more comfortable than a pair of high heels. We wear those high heels when we want to look the best version of ourselves and we want to deport our deportment to be more graceful and elegant. And with the corsetry, we can achieve this other shape where our waist goes in and makes us feel much more sexy. And so in the future, you'll see along with the high heels, you'll have your corset in the wardrobe and you'll think, oh, I'll wear those. I'll wear one or the other. <laughs> well, I certainly look forward to that. I can probably dig out from somewhere in the attic all those ones I have and get one of yours. Exactly, because at the end of the day, you need a Deborah Brown one. <laughs> of course I do. Of course I do. I think one of the first dresses, and this is going back a bit in time, which is around the time we met, I remember... You had this beautiful little booty just um, in West Hampstead, close to where I grew up in Hampstead, sub-couture. And I got this dress. I mean, people just literally stopped me when I was out and just go, what, what? And I don't know, but the fabric was something phenomenal and you would just walk and it would just have this bounce on its own. It was amazing. Oh, that sounds wonderful to hear. It was like the Marilyn Monroe dress without the wind fan. It just did it on its own. It was like a triumph of design. So just to go back a little bit even further in your history, what I'm always curious about, especially when I come up and and meet with artists and people who are incredibly creative as you are, where does this start? Are you born a creative or are you created a creative? Nature or nurture. Was it your environment? What is there in your story? There is a very funny story. Tell me. Uh, Up until about five years ago, I know that by the age of five, I was a designer. I'd never consciously had made that decision I just was born knowing just as I was female that I was a fashion designer so I've never questioned it I've as some people say I was given a gift and I really like when I first heard that I thought "Mm, but it is it's a gift that I was given but about five years ago I was having a chat with my mom and I was saying uh, that I had to sew this garment and she says oh I can she said oh I can sew And I said, Mum, I've never seen you sew. And she said, well, I used to make all your clothes until you were five years old. And I said, well, what stopped you? And she said, I realised that it was cheaper to make them. And to buy them, sorry, it was cheaper to buy them, which was very, very funny. And I said to her, did it not occur to you to perhaps tell me that you used to make clothes in my formative years? Because it might have had an effect on what I've become, to which she said, hmm, you've got a point. (laughs) (laughs) So now I don't know if I have to change my entire story of this uh, gifted woman who never knew anything else. Um, But uh, yeah, that's uh, a new piece of information I've been given. Well, perhaps I'm not telling you allowed you to flourish and find your own path. Who knows? Mothers have their own kind of wisdom, don't they? Well, I could say... I agree with everything you're saying. I could say there were a lot of things around me and that was what I was drawn towards. 
and at a very, very early age, because I'm sure there was a lot of other things exposed to me. So, but that's the one thing that I've always had. I've never questioned doing anything else. And we're living now in a world where people don't just have more than one career throughout their lives. They have more than one career at any given moment. Yeah. Act, actress, writer, model, director, it's all about being multifaceted, having all these different strings to your bow. But with me, I've only ever been a designer. This is, uh, this is all that I've ever loved. It's a very much, uh, what are the words you would use? Uh, an obsession. It's a, it's a need to do. And it's just the best way to describe it is if I don't do it, I become unhappy. I'd say, yeah, you're pretty much born a creative then. Mm, I think so. <laughs> I think by now, we've figured that out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness for that. So yeah. you're happy and you've found something that really brings you joy and meaning in your life and has yeah. supported you through all of it. Now, did you go to art school, design school? What was your trajectory? I had a, a wonderful, as I say, things, sometimes fate gets in the way. I grew up as uh, the child of West Indian parents that had come over to this country, so they weren't uh, used to being here. Uh, they were used to a completely different culture and also very academic, so they thought that the best path for me was to follow an academic career so that they could protect me and nurture me within this, this world. But I had this creative urge that was just getting larger and larger and larger and I went to Croydon College to study maths, physics and computing science and by complete fate Croydon had a fashion college and I had no idea, no idea and they came over, the fashion students came over to our refectory and asked me to model for them and so the next two years were spent in the fashion size. <laughs> not going to any of my lessons. <laughs> I did that for my family and just completely submerging myself in the world of fashion. And by the time I came out of college, I knew there was just no way I could not do it. I didn't know how I was going to go about it. I didn't know how my family were going to react. All I knew is it was a compulsion that I had to do it. And this is one thing I would say to the next generation. We're living in a very different world now where it's so immediate and uh, we're all, I succumb to it, social media where I post something and I then check back for these likes, for this comment, this uh, sort of uh, confirmation that you're great. But the only real confirmation that you can get is the confirmation you give yourself. That's the Absolutely. only one that's last, that will last. It's like a drug, it's like a heroin. If you're looking for it outside, you have to keep hitting outside again and again and again. And that's why we post, we repost, we, re we do all of these things. But the one thing I would passionately say to anyone of any age is find that thing that makes you passionate. Find that, that one thing that when you're doing it, everything else disappears. And then focus on that and be the very best that you can be at that one thing. Because that is the root of happiness. Now that could be being a mother, that could be being a teacher. It's that passion of what it is 
And I believe, I believe and I know that we all have this, this one belief inside of us and find that and that won't come from the noises outside that won't come from recognition from others that will come from listening to your soul absolutely amen to that and um so this compulsion it's a beautiful word actually because it compels you forward now that you've graduated into very early success and quite phenomenal success is that that's right isn't it i mean there's an outsider that's Amazing. You, I think as an artist, you're always a work in progress. You're yeah. always a work in progress. My, my next thing now that I feel that I know that with the corsetry I've reached, there's a level that it's now at where it's reached a pinnacle. And no matter how I dress the corsets in different ways, for me, the structure and the architecture, it's, you've reached this point where it is at, my opinion perfection and so now the next goal is to collaborate with other artists and create something that is a fusion of your talent and theirs so you're ever you're continuing to grow you would never think I don't think any artist could sit and say oh I'm really good at what I do I'm really successful not somebody who's compelled because our compulsion is just to keep getting better and we look back artists tend to look forward when we look back we see ourselves in the past mm-hmm. and so for us it's always it's always getting better that's that's how it is yeah well i think you know one of the uh, core values or not values but one of the core qualities of an artist to even be able to succeed is having this optimistic outlook yeah and most of the time it gives the power and the attention to pessimists, you know, scientists who can predict outcomes. But it's nearly always the optimists who are right in the end. Well, when we're dealing with science, the subjects I studied, or allegedly studied, sorry, (laughs) if you never knew this, I'm sure you figured it out by now, um, is it's an exact science. So with math, there's an equation, there's a correct answer, and that is finite. Yeah. When you are creating, there's no beginning, middle, or end. You, are, you don't know when it's going to start. You can't sit down and say for an hour, every artist that's listening to me right now is going to go, yes, yes, yes. You know, you don't sit down at five o'clock and say, oh, I'll just do an, an hour of, of drawing or, or sewing or creating. No, it usually happens in the middle of the night. You wake up and you have to grab some pad because all artists keep pads by their bed and scribble this idea down and go with it as long as it stays with you. So there's no rhyme, reason or logic to it. And in some ways you are a slave to it. You are channeling this creativity and it will come when it wants to. So what I try to do, I was told... uh, um, very wise words from a man called Zach Ove many years ago is that we have four hours of creativity in us every day and we can keep going we can spend 14 hours a day but all we're doing is repeating ourselves creatively yeah. we have this four hours that we can pour out and then we can work the other four hours on the mathematics of it or you know a paperwork or something else you can work a full day but that thing of being creative can only do four hours 
maximum. So as you get older and you get into your creativity, you learn certain ways that you can work around it. That definitely saved me the four hours. So once I hit four hours, I think, right, I'm going to stop and then I can carry on the next day. But other than that, it's quite erratic and (laughs) absolutely torturous. (laughs) I can completely understand that. Now, you come across and you are, as I know you to be, an incredibly wise woman and you kind of, you know, you've got your head turned on in the right direction, all the lights are home and the lady is home. That's very kind of you to say. (laughs) So, you know, I'm curious to know, uh, were you always like this? Or do you think you've had your training wheels on through early experiences in your career? Oh, I don't think I'm how you purport me to be right now. (laughs) Much less back then. uh, If it wasn't for this compulsion, there's no way that I would be who I am and do what I do. In some ways, it happens without me. I am, I feel that my life is slightly erratic in that I'm held by this compulsion. I'm, I'm ruled by it in some ways. And I think that that is a very standard thing when I meet with other artists, when we discuss it, because when artists get together, because Artists have to have isolation in order to create. So when we can be around other artists, we can say, did you do that? Is, does it feel like this for you? You know, the four... Very valuable points, particularly about the four-hour thing. Yes. I know that completely. Do I, you? Oh, my God. I mean, even in my own work with a client, this perfect moment. And Toni Morrison put it really beautifully recently. She was saying, someone asked her the question, did you know at the time you wrote something that was beautiful? And she said, yes. And then there were times I knew about... 10 years later. (laughs) (laughs) As artists, uh, I I can only really speak for myself, but as I say, I know a lot of amazing artists and we do agree on that point. There is this suffering that we have to go through because whenever I'm creating something, I need to know it's the very, very best I can do. And before I learned this, I would keep pushing my deadlines and want more time to do it to create something and now I've learned this is the very best I can do up until this moment and then what I create next will be better we leave this at this moment this is Deborah in 2019 on in August the 20th at 2 p.m you know (laughs) I finished it at that moment and everything I do is then forward. So our work is our, almost our biography. Absolutely. So even, even a day of work can be a biography of the day and sort of see a trail of the process. What I really want to ask you, what inspires you? The female form. I see it as a canvas for my art. I always have. I find it an incredibly wonderful shape to design around but then again I've never felt the need or the desire or the compulsion to design menswear I just find women women very very beautiful not from an I'm not attracted to women not from a desire point of view from a much more artistic point of view I see female forms as works of art and just always have and when I've gone about designing things 
it always then has to be wrapped, once it's wrapped around a woman, it becomes three-dimensional and it becomes an object of desire. That magic of a female form going inside, in, inside it makes it come alive. And so I just feel like it's the best possible way to express my art. Amazing. It's as simple as that. What motivates you? What motivates me? Being the best, just being the very best that I can be, seeing where it goes. You were referring to Tony Morrison. Yeah. And uh, this feeling of you know that it's good. There's times where I've made things and I've stood back and I've thought, wow, that is great. Absolutely great. And that happened, I have to say, with the corsetry. Up until then, I thought things that I was doing, what was doing was quite good. But once I started with corsetry, it's such an art, I did stand back and say to myself, wow, that's amazing. So I think that feeling, that drives you, that feeling of, I've done the very, it's accomplishment, isn't it? I've done the very best that I can. I'm, I'm proud to have yeah. pride in yourself, in your personal struggle. You know, once you find that thing, then it's, it's, it's just how can I make this the most beautiful thing I possibly can? So that drives me, I think. Yeah. I love, you know, what really touched me is as you were saying that, especially with pride and, and the, the passion of it, how you touched your heart. Oh, did I? Yeah, yeah. I think these things do really come from the heart in that sense. So... We've had this wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed listening to you and learning and understanding a little bit more about the history of corsetry. So I know you've you've moved in a new direction. It was bespoke and it was designer and you were working very exclusively one-to-one with clients in couture. And you're making this move now to bring your work to a wider audience. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. I see what I achieve in the faces of my private clients and I want to make that available to a wider audience. I feel that the time is right. We're in this place now where we are celebrating the female form. There was a, can I give you a little anecdote? Yeah. Back in the 19th century, some men, when they went away, they would leave their woman laced in a corset so that when they came back, if the corset was laced up in a different way, they would know that the woman had taken on a lover, a form of a chastity belt. And the New York Times wrote an article, I think it was in 2017, saying uh, now where corsetry was seen as a sign of repression, it's seen as a sign of women's empowerment because women are calling their own shots and they're tightening their own laces (laughs) and I just thought yeah that hits the nail on the head doesn't it just and it just makes you feel so great I know that every woman must at some point in their life try on a corset and get laced in and just know that feeling and try to not let that change them Like, oh wow, yeah, amazing. Suddenly, I watched the women go from slouching to I've look, I've already done it. When I mention the word corset or think of it, I sit up straight immediately. Look at my uh, look at the way I'm sat now. 
there's a word for it that I can't remember I tried from before but they sit up straight and then they suddenly do this with their hands <laughs> and the, everything becomes quite animated because they're, they're, they're beaming they're enjoying they're celebrating themselves because they've hit some sort of feminine superpower within themselves and it's just I never get tired of watching that well, I do really think that when women embrace their femininity, which is what I loved about corsets, yeah. is you do feel like you're like, kapow, kick. Yeah. I mean, you know, in my corsets, I call myself the Black Panther. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit, I, like, when I felt, I had some false nails done when I was 20. Yeah. And uh, I'd never had false nails before. And uh, I just found myself using my hand with everything oh hello <laughs> and then you would put your hand on your face yeah and you just you know you would want people to see this and it's the same effect that the corset has on you has this effect that you want to be seen yeah. you want to be noticed and men I'm, I can't tell you like corsetry I'm absolutely fascinated with corsetry when I was a fashion designer men just saw clothing as something that they had to go and sit with their wives go shopping in an afternoon and pretend that they liked every single garment that was what a, a man's idea of uh, fashion was but with corsetry their ears are pricked and they're paying attention so. absolutely well I'd be think most you'd be hard pressed to find a healthy emotional adult male who doesn't find a confident secure woman incredibly attractive yes and on that on that point i uh, know that dressing a woman is 20% how she looks it's 80% how she feels absolutely because when a woman owns how she looks she walks different she stands different her energy, everything about her is different. So that's my always been my goal, to make women feel amazing. On that, we share something deeply in common. Isn't that <laughs> such a wonderful thing, though, to do? To gift that to women? I guess so. I quite like it. Yeah. It changed, corsetry changed my life. It changed how I felt about my body and... I'm somebody who is much more behind the scenes. I dress the woman. I'm not the woman. I, I want to give, make somebody else feel fantastic. But I have found with corsetry, I kind of like people looking at me too. <laughs> Good. Because you feel so sexy. Yeah. And you can't get away from it. Yeah. Again, I'm still sitting up straight because I mentioned it. It just makes you feel like a different human no i wouldn't say that it makes you i think you use the word it gets you in touch with your feminine side it just tunes you into that femininity which we can't be like that every hour of the day because we have to get stuff done and we don't always want to be noticed you wear a corset when you want to be noticed when you Absolutely. want to be seen well, I think that's the glorious thing about being human and being born of two parents is we always have this capacity to lean into our masculine side, to lean into our feminine side, yeah. excuse me, and what's in between. And the wonderful thing is we can explore everything that's in between from the one extreme to the other. And corsetry seems to really embrace that end of the feminine where yes. we really go fully into it's right at the end of that spectrum it's the most feminine you can feel and in complete agreement with you you don't want to feel like that 
every day. You want that spectrum. I've gone out wearing men's suits. Love yeah. it. Yeah. Love it. I will mix it with high heels and, you know, a bit of red lipstick. But I love that feeling. I don't want to look like this all the time. And that's the thing that I do want to make a, a big point about is it's, I don't see corsetry as a fashion statement. I see it as an option. Mm-hmm. Just like wearing a suit, just like wearing a tracks a tracksuit sweats. It's just another option. And what a great option it is. In, in my personal opinion, you can tell I'm slightly biased. You courses. are slightly biased. I'm not, I don't feel any need to convince you of anything <laughs> whatsoever. No, I, it's not, and it's not about convincing me, but I just thought it was so wonderful to actually be able to have you come here and you speak about it from the creator's perspective, especially as there's, as you say, no one else doing it. But I do know, and I'm really excited, and I think for our listeners, it would really be great if you can share it with us. When? <laughs> when? When is it going to be available? Ah, oh, this autumn. Right. So we're in 2019 yeah. right now. So this autumn, but from September onwards, they will be available to buy online. We're in discussions to go into one department store and have it exclusive, but I don't have any dates around that. But uh, yeah, they'll be available online. Fantastic. At deborahbrand.com? At www.deborahbrand.com and go into the boutique. And it's the Mila corset. It's an underbus corset. And if you go to YouTube, you'll be able to see a video, uh, Deborah Brand YouTube, a video of how to get in and out of the corset, how to get into the corset in under a minute and how to get out in under 30 seconds. So you have all of that backup. We're trying to do our absolute best, or I'm trying to do, to make it something that is uh, readily available to the public. Fantastic. You know what, Deborah? It's been an absolute joy. Oh, to likewise! Have you. And thank you so much for bringing your wisdom and your joy and your creativity, and you. Thank you for joining us on Conversations with Ourselves. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today on Conversations with Ourselves. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. For more information about Deborah Brand's beautiful corsets, or if you'd just like to place your order right now, then please visit her website, www.deborahbrand.com. You can also find her on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Let us know what conversations you're having, what empowers you, what inspires you. Leave a review or subscribe so that you are the first one online to receive the next episode of Conversations with Ourselves.